0: Oh my, it is a good morning, isn't it? Man, it is such a good morning. I'm seeing people come into faith in Jesus, uh, people joining this church family, babies being born and new grandparents sitting behind me. I know now why you don't sing your songs. You shout them at North Boulevard. So many things to celebrate. And I'm really, really honored to be here with you. If we have not met, my name is David Hunziker. I am the campus minister at the West Murfreesboro campus of North Boulevard, Church of Christ. And we're going to get right in, but I need your help. Grab something that you own and hold it in your hands it could be a cell phone your keys your wallet purse it doesn't matter grab something while you're grabbing it okay actually I should warn you don't grab your Bible it's the only time I'll ever say that don't grab your Bible because it's going to be really awkward in a second if you do that grab something else take note of what your neighbor's grabbing you might want to trade in a minute all right get something in your hand online get something in your hand grab something I don't, I left everything in the office, I don't have anything, so I won't, I won't participate. Okay, if you look at the thing, the thing you've got, let's let it represent everything else in your possession, your stuff, your belongings. Let it represent the money in your bank account, clothes in your closet, food in your pantry, the car in your garage. And I want to point out something that maybe we haven't pointed out frequently enough. You have a relationship with your stuff. Did you know that? If you don't believe it, then imagine the person beside you really does take it. And how do you feel? You do have a relationship with your stuff. Thoughts, feelings, interactions all go into it. The question is, is it a healthy relationship or not? Because just like any relationship, the relationship you have with your stuff is either healthy or unhealthy. And there are a whole lot of ways to end up in an unhealthy relationship with your stuff, even if you're not conscious about it, especially maybe if you're not conscious about it. Here are at least some possibilities of how you could be relating to your stuff. Worrying. Overspending. Thanks, Amazon, for that. Hoarding. Competing with others. And even seeking validation through the things you own. These are Possible unhealthy ways to relate to the stuff that you have in your hand. You didn't mean to get there, but over time you got there. Some have gone so far as to place their things in authority over themselves. Jesus says you can actually become a slave to the stuff you own. And it's important to know that the way you relate to your stuff actually says a lot about you. It says a lot about you as a person. It says a lot about you as a follower of Christ. How do you relate to your stuff? Okay, you can actually, before you put it away, we're going to speak to it. This is why you don't want your Bible. Okay, so the thing you're, you're holding in your hand, I want you to say these words to it like you mean it. Are you ready? I want you to say, I am in control. Can you say that? I, am in I don't think it believed you. Try it again. I am, I am in control. All right, you can put it away. You can put it away. So we don't want an unhealthy relationship with our things. Rather, as you turn in your Bible to Deuteronomy chapter 24, We're going to find in this chapter a beautiful practice. And behind that beautiful practice is a life-giving principle. If you choose to live out that life-giving principle, you will remain in right relationship with your stuff. If you live out this principle, you will also better reflect God's nature to the world. If you don't, then you might fall for the very trap that Jesus warns you of. He says, watch out, because greed is looking to entangle you. And life does not consist in abundance of possessions. So we need to study this chapter for that principle. Uh, I will tell you that at the end of the chapter is where we're going to get it. By the end of the chapter, we're going to land on generosity. But we don't start there. As a matter of fact, we actually start with the opposite. We kind of start with selfish behavior. Then we move into greed And then the chapter will eventually land on generosity, and I'm eager to get there and to preach this virtue of generosity. Let's begin in Deuteronomy chapter 24 in verse 1. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, and if after she leaves his house, she becomes the wife of another man, And her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house or if he dies. Then her first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Let's pause right there. We obviously have not started with generosity. We've started with what Jesus calls hard-heartedness and selfishness, which is why we read what we read in Deuteronomy. I want to make a few points about this and we're not going to camp here, but it is significant enough that we need to note a few things. First of all, this is a wildly misunderstood text. I think we could all agree on that. For millennia, by the time you get to Jesus, this text is still very misunderstood. The religious elite argue about it. They argue about what this word indecent means. They argue about the commandment itself. Even going so far as to say to Jesus, why did Moses then command us to send our wives away? Why did he command a certificate of divorce? It's wildly misunderstood. But you should note, Moses does not command or commend divorce in this text. Rather, he presupposes divorce. It's happening. It just is. And with this case law... It's not a law for you to divorce your wife, but with this specific case law, he interjects regulations that are for the protection of the woman and for the honor and the glory of God. I do want to note what those regulations are and why they matter. So the first one he says is you must not divorce arbitrarily. This is a prohibition against no-fault divorce. This is why you will find that there must be something indecent. That is discovered. This indecency has its root word in that of nakedness or shame, some moral flaw that would necessitate this happening. Secondly, divorce must not be done hastily. Hence the legal process that Moses requires. This is a a prohibition against abandonment of your spouse. You cannot just in a fit of rage send them out to fend on their own on the streets. This is a prohibition against that. And fortunately, the divorce uh, scenario slowed down to go through this legal process, which brings us to number three. Divorce must not create more vulnerability than it already does. So the technical reading of of the word is that the woman must leave with the certificate of divorce in hand. Why? So that she's protected in a wardship culture. She can remarry and place herself under the protection and provision of another man. She's also free from false accusation because if you were to say, wait, I know you were married to that other guy and now you're in sin by being with this man, she can point to the legal certificate of divorce and prove that she has been separated legally and thus protected. So there's a lot that you could still try to unwrap and discover about this case law. It's helpful to just take it to Jesus and Matthew 19 as he clears the air on what Deuteronomy 24 is about. So when you come to Jesus with Deuteronomy 24, he says, Moses Permitted, which is a far cry from the word commanded that the religious elite used, permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. It wouldn't have been the right time to outlaw it altogether. Maybe if even endangered the women further to have done so. This is because of the hardness of your heart. But it was not this way from the beginning. Jesus's interest on the beginning should probably be your interest about the beginning as well. Because we find pure intent. In the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another woman commits adultery. Very simply put, according to Jesus, except for marital unfaithfulness, your commitment to your wife is a commitment for life." Amen? That's where we stand as a church. Your commitment to your wife is a commitment for life. And the disciples were shocked by this. Man, it seems hard then to marry. How can you make it? Why why couldn't it not just be no fault divorce? Why couldn't we find our own ways out of marriage? Jesus is interested in giving you a new heart that you would love your wives well and honor God well. But I will say, we're going to move on. I don't even really want to. I know this is such a big topic and it it matters a whole lot to the scriptures. It matters to us. Marriage is designed in such a way as to where it, it breeds procreation. That's why God brings it about. We can be fruitful and multiply and bring life into the world in a stable environment, create and sustain life. Marriage is for illustration. We literally get an object lesson of Christ in the church in marriage as we love our spouses well. And marriage is for sanctification. That's why it's hard, because it helps you become more holy. And that's also why it's so important. That's why there are teachings on marriage in the Bible. It's why we take it seriously and why we take the commitment seriously, which kind of naturally actually brings us to verse 5. You'll read this in verse 5. If a man has recently married, he must not be sent to war or have any other duty laid on him. For one year he is to be free to stay at home and bring happiness to the wife he has married. This is the closest biblical text to happy wife, happy life. (laughs) You're like, I knew that was in the Bible somewhere. Here you go. He's going to be home and he's going to take care of his wife and bring her happiness. That means that the laying of the foundation of your marriage is, um, is important to God. You might even go so far as to say it's an act of worship unto God. God cares more about you laying the foundation for a solid commitment than he even does you laying a foundation for a solid career. So for that first year, a yes to your spouse, a yes to your wife is a not yet to everything else. You want to enjoy that year of laying a solid foundation for your spouse. And by the way, this is a really timely text for this morning. Uh, As we read about um, sending this young husband off to war, God is a tender God. And he knows that a weekend like Memorial Day weekend is hard enough as it is. For many, it's hard enough as it is. So the last thing that he wanted for a young wife is to be without the love of her husband before she got the opportunity to enjoy it. Before she got the opportunity to experience his provision and protection and intimacy. This is also a perfect reason, not that I really need one, for me to pay my respects and acknowledge the many who have fallen in uniform protecting this land I love and protecting the opportunities that I enjoy, including this very opportunity today. So, I do pay my thanks, and this is a timely and touching message for this morning. We move on to the next verse, verse six. And in verse six, we're gonna see greediness and God commanding and regulating against it. You'll see how damaging it can be for humans. Verse six do not take a pair of millstones, not even the upper one, as a security for a debt. Because that would be taking a person's livelihood as security. Just a quick note on this. If you remember from Deuteronomy 23, you wouldn't um, charge interest to a fellow Israelite if they were to, to, to borrow money from you. You could, however, take a pledge or collateral. But you ought not take collateral that would disadvantage the other man. So to take millstone is to take a tool whereby this poor man would have provided a meal for his family and maybe even worked his way out of debt. This is the, uh, to make the bread, the staple food of the day. If you take that man's millstone, first of all, yes, you have a right to it. You've lent him the money. He owes you. And I know you want to pledge because you want guarantee that he's going to repay back the loan. But this is a really key text for us today, at least describing this, explaining this. Greed leads to exercising personal rights, even when it is clearly not right. If what you're doing is to take advantage of someone, leaves them in a vulnerable state, keeps them from ever being able to work their way out of the situation that they're in, it's not right to leverage that right. And God has a heart for the poor. And we're going to see that as we continue working our way down. So verse 7 actually gets even more greedy, if you can believe it. If someone is caught kidnapping a fellow Israelite, and treating or selling them as a slave. The kidnapper must die. You must purge the evil from among you. So the first draft of this sermon, all I really wanted to say on that is, duh, don't kidnap anybody. You can't take a living person and get advantage or profit from them and steal them or sell them or enslave them. But then you think about it again and you think, okay, this is actually happening. This did happen. It does happen. Which means the Bible is honest concerning, one, the nature of God and who he is, but also concerning the nature of humans. Greed can so infiltrate your thoughts. Greed can so infiltrate your heart that you would literally use people and love things. That's greed. Greed is using people and loving things. And by the way, A really great preacher once stood in this pulpit. He's now sitting in front of me who said these lines, and I wrote them down. I don't write down everything, but I wrote these down. And I have to share them again today. This is greed, using people, loving things. Generosity is quite the opposite, isn't it? Generosity is using things to love people. And fortunately, that's where the chapter will go. But right now, we're just wading through greed and how damaging it is for human relationships. Okay, let's move to this next text, verse 8. In a case of defiling skin diseases, be very careful to do exactly as the Levitical priests instruct you. You must follow carefully what I have commanded them. Remember what the Lord your God did to Miriam along the way after you came out of Egypt. You might not remember what God did to Miriam. I'm going to share that. So, God obviously cares about contagious diseases in his land, among his people. He has a heart for that. We're thankful. For the protection and the way that God has intervened and blessed us through this difficult time. We pray for more of that. But he's, Moses is really pointing out something else in this text. Right here, Moses is once again reminding the people that though it's difficult to do, they are to be subject to God's appointed leaders. They're to live in obedience to the leaders that God has appointed and to the Word of God that comes from those leaders. He's a humble man, Moses. But God stands beside Moses and defends him as an appointed leader. That's what happened to Miriam. Miriam spoke up against Moses. She questioned his authority. And she was stricken with leprosy on her face. She was sent outside the camp and dealt with that leprosy for seven days before she was brought in. How much more so would someone suffer who speaks against the authority then of Christ? How much more so to speak against the authority of Christ's apostles? So come with your questions, come with doubts, but I plead with you, come humble. Come humbly. Don't speak against the authority of God's appointed leaders, not through whom the word of God flows to us today. The prophets, priests, Christ, the apostles on whom we are built. So I don't know who that was for. It was for somebody. Stay humble. Stay humble as you seek the truth. Verse 10. When you make a loan of any kind to your neighbor, do not go into their house to get what is offered to you as a pledge. That would uh, really not take into account the dignity of the person. Stay outside and let the neighbor to whom you are making the loan bring the pledge out to you. If the neighbor is poor, do not go to sleep with their pledge in your possession. Return their cloak by sunset so that your neighbor may sleep in it. Then they will thank you, and it will be regarded as a righteous act in the sight Of the Lord your God might not mean a ton to you to think about this pledge and again the returning of this pledge. So, like you wouldn't want to take the man's millstone, you wouldn't want to take a poor man's cloak and keep it overnight. The cloak was a blanket used to stay warm on cold cold nights. And interestingly, God is like, I'm so close to that poor person that I'll see if you return that or not. Certainly, you have a right to it, but I'll see if you return it. And if you return it, that's an act of righteousness to me. So 560 times in your Christian scriptures, God reveals his heart for the poor, for the marginalized. This is one of those times. And what he says is that if your heart then, I think this is true about all the scriptures that you read. If your heart doesn't yet beat for the poor, it does not yet beat with God's. Not yet. God is a champion for the poor. He's so close to them that he knows how you interact with them. He hears their cries. He sees how you bless them and how you don't and it's important then for your heart to beat for the poor, as God's does. Return the blanket. Number 14. Let's let's go to verse 14. Again, we're going to see ways that you can interact with the poor. Do not take advantage of a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether that worker is a fellow Israelite or a foreigner residing in one of your towns. Pay them their wages each day before sunset because they are poor and are counting on it. Otherwise they may cry to the Lord against you and you will be guilty of sin. Again, see how close God is to the poor and how he champions them. So he'll notice if you return the pledge, he'll also notice if you don't pay fair or if you don't pay in a timely manner. So assuming some of you are employers, this is a a quick note. Make sure you're fair to your workers. Make sure you account for their needs. Make sure you, you are kind to the needy worker who works for you. Parents do not be put to death, or not to be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their parents. Each will die for their own sin. Verse 17, do not deprive the foreigner or the fatherless of justice, or take the cloak of the widow as a pledge. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. That is why I command you to do this. And now he's going to introduce a practice I've been eager to get to. This practice is one of the greatest social welfare practices practices I think you'll ever come across. It shows the tenderness of God and his heartbeat for the poor. It's also going to show you how to relate rightly to your stuff. Here's the practice. When you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. Those three are mentioned and they're going to be mentioned again and again because they are the most vulnerable, often the most poor in this particular society and in many around the world. So that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat the olives from your trees, do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless and the widow. And when you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, you know what to do. Don't go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the foreigners, the foreigner, the fatherless and the widow. So when God brings Israel out of slavery and through the wilderness, He brings them into a land of abundance. We know about the promised land. It's flowing with milk and honey, meaning it's bountiful. We know that you're going to need two men to carry grapes from your vineyard because they're going to be heavy. There will be lots of them. God's generosity is not lacking here for his people. What he's communicating is you can all flourish. This will work. Everyone can eat. Everyone will make it if, if you will live by the principle of generosity. And here's that principle. All you have is not all for you. This will work if, you're, if you live by the principle of generosity. God says, I'm generous enough for this to work, but you will need to be generous. So literally, a landowner would look from the far corner to the far corner of his field, a land that is rightfully his, just like the thing you had in your hand. And that landowner, in the preparation of the field, in the sowing of the field, and in the harvesting, would either live by this principle or not. All that I have is not all for me. If you live by it, then you will unlock the generous spirit God gave to you. And you will do great good for those in need. If you don't live by it, the very people that your excess was intended for won't reap the benefits. They won't have what they need. This is to be applied to your bank account. All I have is not all for me. Don't reap to the far corners of your bank account, not the edges. This is to be applied to your closet. All of this is not for me. Don't harvest to the edges. Literally, you're probably not wearing the clothes on the edges anyway. This is to be applied to your pantry. All I have is not for me. In every way, shape, and form, we live by this principle. And you're going to see a story that flows from this in just a minute. Let's finish the text in verse 22. And I think he finishes it this way intentionally. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. That is why I command you to do this. Do you know why he says that? Because you'll always have an excuse as to why you're not going to be generous today. You'll always have an excuse as to why. You'll, you'll always talk yourself out of it. Of doing the thing that your heart is trying to lead you to do. The Holy Spirit is trying to lead you to do. You'll always have an excuse. And what he's saying is here, remember, there was a time when you needed God's mercy. There was a time when you needed God's generosity. And you got it. Now go and pass it on. Go and give it to the person who needs it from you. And the most amazing thing happens. When you remember God's mercy and generosity over your life, do you know what you forget? When you remember his mercy, you will forget your excuses. And that's awesome. There's so many generous people here at North Boulevard. This is a generous church. I'm so honored to be here. I'm so humbled to be before some of the most generous people that I know. There was a generous lady I actually just three weeks ago spent some time with her. She's from North Boulevard. I'm not going to name her, and I will avoid specifics, but I do want to tell you this. She gives to the homeless. She spends a lot of time among the homeless. She gives from her own closet. She takes from her own bank account. She bakes food from her own pantry and gives it away, and I sat down with her to ask a question, first of all, I wanted to know why she was doing what she was doing because I didn't want her to do it out of guilt. You know what that's like? When you go a stretch of time and you're, and you're serving out of guilt, that's actually really, really bad for you. It can be spiritually draining too. So I wanted to make sure that wasn't happening. I just said, hey, tell me why you're doing what you're doing. What a week looks like for you. And she described what a week is like, and then she got to the answer. She says, you know, I'll tell you why I do it. Because every morning when I pray, and by the way, it's not out of guilt. This is a beautiful answer. She says, every morning in my prayer time. God gives me an image. He puts it in my head. It's like it's a gift to me. I say, well, what do you see? She says, I see the cross every morning. And I'm reminded that I am running after a man who gave it all away. That's not being motivated by guilt. That's beautiful. And up to this point in the series, maybe you can't yet say beauty and obedience in the same sentence. Maybe you're learning to do that. But maybe you can say beauty and generosity in the same sentence. And much of being obedient to God is being generous unto people, because we're chasing a man who gave it all away. And when you remember his mercy, you forget your excuses. So the virtue we're going to be diving into a little further before we wrap up is generosity. And there's a really neat exercise I want to introduce to you anytime you're learning about a virtue. You want to make it real and it not just be an abstract thing. So I like to picture a person from head to toes. And I want this person to represent me. So you need to do the mental work of let this represent you. And you can start from the top. Start from the mind. Move to the eyes. You can include the ears, mouth, heart, hands, the feet. We're not going to cover all of that today. But then just ask yourself this question. What is a generous person thinking about What is a generous person doing with their eyes, their heart, their hands? Take any virtue. What is a thankful person thinking about? What does a thankful person do with their eyes, their heart, their hands? So we're going to work through this uh, when it comes to generosity. And I will warn you on the front end as we go through this. And we'll be quick. It's painful. It's so convicting. Every time I do this with a virtue, I end up on the floor. So I'm just going to pray. The Holy Spirit will encourage you. And we'll work through this and learn along the way. First, here is the beautiful mind of a generous person. A generous person has accepted the reality of his or her own abundance, which is not easy to do. This means that at least once throughout the day, you say to yourself, I have more than I need. I have something to share. That's how a generous person thinks. I have more than I need. I have something to share. Now, you might not feel like you live in abundance, and some are certainly on harder times than others. So I would encourage you to think about other aspects of your life. Again, think about your closet. Think about your pantry. Think about your schedule. But a generous person is thinking, I have something to share. Now, we talked earlier about our unhealthy attachment to things And I have a book in front of me that challenges it. And I'll never forget when I read this quote, I'm going to read it to you. I was sitting in a brown recliner and I felt for the first time like I had been a fish swimming in water with so many other fish swimming in water. I didn't know I was swimming in water. I had no idea until I read this that I had a bad relationship with my stuff because quite frankly, so many others do. And we live in a culture that does. So this guy, Richard Foster, in his book Celebration of Discipline just comes right At it. Brace yourself. Because we lack a divine center, our need for security has led us into an insane attachment to things. We really must understand that the lust for affluence in contemporary society, and I would not have picked this word, but I like it, is psychotic. It's psychotic because it has completely lost touch with reality. We crave things, We neither need nor enjoy. We buy things we don't even want to impress people we don't even like. We are made to feel ashamed to wear clothes or drive cars. I'll interject, use a phone until they are worn out. The mass media have convinced us that to be out of step with fashion is to be out of step with reality. It's time we awaken to the fact that conformity to a sick society is to be sick. Until we see how unbalanced our culture has become at this point, we will not be able to deal with the mammon spirit within ourselves, the love of money within ourselves, nor will we desire Christian simplicity. The psychosis permeates even our mythology, our storytelling. The modern hero is the poor boy who purposefully becomes rich rather than the rich boy who voluntarily becomes poor. Covetousness we call ambition. Hoarding we call prudence. Greed, we call industry. It's incredibly difficult to ever take notice of your own abundance when your mind is sick. But find something in your life of which you can share. The Bible is so good because it cuts right through this. When John the Baptist is preaching, he says, if you have a repentant heart, then this will be true of you. Anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. For John, it's very simple. If you have two shirts, you have an abundance because somebody doesn't have one. If you have food for tomorrow, you have an abundance because somebody doesn't have food for today. For John, it's it's not that hard. Number one, accept the reality of your own abundance. Eyes, what are the eyes doing of a generous person? Their eyes are taking notice of others who live in scarcity. So it's really hard to know when greed is affecting you because it just happens subtly. Greed is very sneaky, very aggressive. Here's a way you can know if greed is affecting you. You know you're being entangled by greed if you avert your eyes from others in need. It's a test. If you don't want to see them, if you don't want to look, If you don't want to know, greed could be influencing you. I'd say greed is influencing you. Uh, Jesus tells a story about this, and we're going to read another story about this. That's the positive. Let me start with the negative. So Jesus in um, Luke chapter 16 tells a story. He says, there's a rich man. He lives in luxury. He's well-fed. He has everything he needs. And at his gate is a poor man named Lazarus. He's a beggar. He's covered with sores, even to the degree that the dogs licked the sores on Lazarus' body. As he starts his story, Jesus makes no mention that the rich man ever looked upon Lazarus. Surely he knew he was there, but never really looked upon him. Not until you get to verse 22. Look at this. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side the rich man also died and was buried. Then guess what happens? In Hades, where he was in torment, the rich man looked up and saw Abraham. For the first time, it's mentioned. He looked up and he saw Lazarus, the poor man. It wasn't until Lazarus was above him in a more successful position, had what the the rich man wanted, that he finally took notice of him. How unfortunate it would be to be somebody who would never notice anybody unless they were more successful than you, or they had what you wanted, or they were doing what you dreamed of doing. This is in stark contrast to Ruth chapter 2 when you meet a man named Boaz. So in Ruth chapter 2, some of you know this story, Ruth is a foreigner, she's a widow, she's from Moab, she's with her mother-in-law, and they travel back to the area around Bethlehem. And she takes advantage of Deuteronomy chapter 24. She begins gleaning from the fields. You remember this. And as she's gleaning from the fields, Boaz, the landowner, comes and he greets her. He says to her, My daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in any other field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. He says this as well. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you're thirsty, go get a drink from the water that the men filled. She responds like this. She bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Do you know that some people have one life goal and that is that you would notice them? They've never been seen. But the generous have eyes to see the ones that others overlook. And I'll tell you that you can begin praying today for eyes to see who you might have already overlooked. Let's move to heart. I told you, this is not easy. I hope you're not discouraged. Don't be discouraged. This is just the way it goes. We We want to be changed into the image of Jesus, who was the most generous man to follow you could ever follow. Number three, we move to heart. So when you move to your heart, a generous person allows compassion to drive your decision. It's really, really hard to hand the keys of a decision over to compassion, isn't it? Because you always want to talk yourself out of it. You always want to think yourself out of why you shouldn't do the thing. At some point along the way, you're going to have to take your keys, hand it to compassion, get out of the way and let compassion drive the decision. Here's why it's scary. So the last time I preached, or two times ago, I think I told you the story of my brother Daniel. He works with dogs. He helped me pick a dog, all right? I'm really glad that he helped me. This is also Daniel. Daniel drives like this, all right? He avoids the roads. Uh, He kind of actually is bored on the roads. He loves to off-road. Since he was 16 years old, he always had a vehicle that could go off-road. And sometimes I call him and I'm like, hey, what's your ETA? He's like, how would I ever know? There's no roadsides out here. This is him. He loves to off-road. I'm not a big fan of it. I remember one time he took us after Sunday church. We were dressed nice. My mom was in a dress and high heels. We went off-roading. We got stuck in the mud. Had to carry mom out of the mud in her high heels. Big mess. But he loves it. What you know is that if you hand the keys to compassion, you're going off-road. There's nothing predictable. There's no signs. There's no way to know how long the road. No way to know an ETA. You don't know if you'll get stuck. But guys, we need more decisions in the church where compassion is driving the vehicle. When you make the decision to hand the keys to compassion, don't get out of the vehicle. Don't take reason out of the vehicle. I'm not saying to do that. Reason kind of needs to be that backseat driver. Reason is the one who says, hey, right here, right now, we need to set healthy boundaries. And you do. You do. We try to every time we we want to help somebody. There has to be really clear, healthy boundaries. Reason will say, hey, we've crossed a line and now we are enabling. And this isn't helping anymore. Compassion might not notice that quickly enough, but your God-given reasoning ability will help you notice, hey, we've crossed a line and now we're, we're doing more harm than good. So keep reason in the vehicle, but hand the keys to compassion. You know why? You'll never help like you were made to help until you do. You'll never say yes to that opportunity until you hand the keys over to compassion. You'll never give the way God designed you to give until you do it. Yeah, you're going to get mud all over you. And though I've kind of made light of it, it's not, a, it's not something to take light of. Yes, your life will become incredibly unpredictable. You will have hardship and strife and difficulty you otherwise wouldn't. But it's worth it. Here's how worth it it is. 1 John three seventeen. If someone has enough money to live well, that's the mentality of abundance, and sees, that's eyes, sees a brother or sister in need, but shows no compassion. How can the love of God be in that person? Let compassion drive. God gave you a heart. Use it. Number four, hands. What what are the generous hands doing? You open your grip and you give. And by the way, number four is just going to happen if one, two, and three happen. You'll just find that your hands are open. Your spouse will take notice and say, all of a sudden, I see you like this now. You share. You're giving. Coworkers will be like, man, you've changed. Your your sons and your daughters will see you like this. It will happen if one, two, and three happen. It's a beautiful thing when this happens. As a matter of fact, if you show me a woman whose heart is fully surrendered to God, I'll show you a woman like this. If you show me a man whose heart is fully surrendered to God, I'll show you a man who shares what he has. He gives from his things. Takes care of others. It just kind of happens. All you have is not all for you. You know what this means then? You get to live the beautiful life of finding out who it is for. Go find out who it is for. Find out who the, the other stuff belongs to that you might not have even met yet, but that you need to share with. I'm gonna tell you a story. I, I have not listened to all of Walker Hayes' music, so I can't recommend it. There's only a few songs that I've ever heard. I do want to tell you a story from one of his songs named Craig. Walker Hayes lives in Nashville, and as a matter of fact, at least one North Boulevard person knows him because she came up and told me about it after first service. They're really good friends. He lives in Nashville. He went to a church where he met a man named Craig. When Walker went to this church, he didn't know what to do in church. He was the oddball, smelled like beer, had struggles, was obvious. He didn't get the culture. He was figuring it out. Craig took to him, loved him, was generous to him. So in verse 2 of this song, he says, when you lose a record deal, yeah, all the perks fade fast. Dealership said... We're going to need to get that mini, minivan back. So we were down to one car and broke as I felt, my wife and six kids and only five seatbelts. I needed help but couldn't admit I was struggling. Said, Craig, it's all good. But he knew it wasn't. A Hey, man, I'm praying for you. Would have been sufficient, but no. He took roadside assistance to a whole other level, to sacrificial heights, showed up at the ballpark after my son's game one night in two cars, With his wife, Laura, in the second, I said, what in the world are you doing here, brother? He just laughed inside the old Chrysler Town and Country van with the keys and a title and a pen in his hand. He said, man, all you got to do is sign and it's yours. I said, no, no way. But he wouldn't take no for an answer. He said, please do. Somebody did this once for me. Let me just do this for you. We argued about it for a little while. Then I teared up. And Craig smiled. When you live generously, all of these things are true about you. It's the beautiful way to live. When you live generously, you travel the same road Jesus walked. Philippians 2. You lay a firm foundation for the age to come. 1 Timothy 6. You remain in power over your money. Ecclesiastes 5. You remain in power over your money rather than your money remaining in power over you. You refuse to treasure the temporal. Instead, you lay up treasures in the eternal, and you choose that life which is really life, 1 Timothy 6, 9. My pride was way too ashamed to be adequately grateful at the moment, but I signed the dotted line, and I drove the kids home. And when the cop pulled up beside us at the light, they didn't have to duck because thanks to Craig, they were all buckled up. You get to go find out who your abundance is for. And you get to reflect God to them and give generously. I pray a generous mind over you, eyes, heart, and hands. Let's go change the world. Would you guys stand up? And we're going to worship our God. If we can help you in any way, go to the back. And we would love to pray with you and for you. Thank you for being here today.